Welcome on stage today's keynote speaker. He has been a member of the European Parliament since November 2017. He's a member of the center-right European People's Party group, and he focuses, among other things, on geopolitics, foreign politics, and the Western Balkan area. Please join me in welcoming on stage Lukas Mandl. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me at this special place for this special occasion. It means a lot to me that we can deliberate today on peace. There is nothing more important than peace uh, with a that diverse audience. And uh, speaking about that, I want to share with you that uh, I intend to make the one or the other very clear remark from my side. But at the same time, I remain very open for reflection, for even criticism, for deliberation, because this is what we are here for, I guess. And I thank also Mr. Ehrmann and all the members of the board and the organizers for the opportunity to speak and to listen more than that and to be here. And I guess I speak on behalf of everybody that it's also timely that uh, we have this opportunity to have an exchange on peace. I tend to quote Ursula von der Leyen, our European Commission's president, time and again, I do it several times a week, with uh, what she said in our special plenary sitting of the European Parliament on the occasion of the beginning of uh, Putin-Russia's war. Uh, actually, the beginning was 2014, as we all know, when Crimea was attacked. But the fully-fledged war began on February 24 last year, as we all know. And what Ursula von der Leyen said in the ple uh, special plenary sitting on March 1st last year was, among other things, that we have to keep our hand outreached to the other Russia. That's what she said. And this is something that remains very important during all these long days and short nights of uh, decision-taking when it comes to the question how this can end and where it will lead to and how peace and freedom will be restored for Ukraine. And actually, all of us uh, have been attacked by this war via hybrid means, as the experts call it. And this not only since February 2022, but already before the results of the special uh, committee of the European Parliament against foreign interference and uh, disinformation uh, are very telling on that. So let's keep that in mind that we have to keep outreached our hand to the other Russia. Because we don't yet know the name or the face of this other Russia. It was uh, also not very probable that this name or this face would appear 10 days ago uh, during these uh, uh, tensions which were revealed to the world uh, in Putin, Russia. But one day uh, we should not miss the opportunity to see the name and the face of the other Russia and to keep uh, our hand outreach there will be important because on a long-term perspective, we should inherit the next generation a neighbor, and this actually a neighbor for European Union. Part of it is within Europe, as we all know, a neighbor which would not be aggressive again. 
So this is uh, on behalf of Peace for the World, on behalf of the Russians, actually. Uh, we can talk about this a lot uh, because there are citizens who are very much under pressure by their regime, but it's on behalf of uh, our own interest for the sake of the Europeans of this generation and for generations to come that we will have a better relation with the other Russia and with the Russia that will be led positively, constructively, democratically, hopefully, and rule of law based. Yeah, it sounds like a vision and if I talk to that about uh, the other Russia to colleagues from the Baltic states or to colleagues from Poland and other parts of Europe, uh, they, they really, uh, yeah, they tend to criticize that because it's, for them it's not yet the time to talk about that, but that's the long-term vision. On the other side, I highly, I'm highly critical on the talk about each war would have ended with a negotiation. You've heard that, and it's just wrong. As an Austrian, I should know my history and the history of my country, it's just wrong. Sometimes aggression was dealt with defense, militarily, and there was no space for dialogue and there was no space for negotiation, and peace and freedom could only be restored via defense and means and measures of defense. And this is the endeavor that Europe is in these days. Uh, supporting Ukraine, but also defending EU soil and all other parts of Europe against these hybrid means and measures of war uh, and against the whole atmosphere of aggression, the whole atmosphere of confrontation that has been appearing not only due to Putin Russia, but also due to other actors uh, on our planet. And uh, this is why we have at the same time to contribute to defense capabilities and to keep that's why I quoted Ursula von der Leyen in the beginning, to keep the hand outreach, not only to the other Russia, but to the world. Because what made Europe strong is the attitude of cooperation. And uh, nobody here needs a lesson about Europe's history, but we know history was bloody, history was full of confrontation, of conflict of various kinds. And what made Europe strong was the idea to do it differently via cooperation, and I still believe into that model of cooperation. I believe in it within Europe, and I believe in it as Europe's attitude in its geopolitical outreach to the world, but not naively. So at the same time, when we have to seek for cooperation, I have quoted Ursula von der Leyen, I also guess we will have to seek for cooperation with China, the People's Republic of China, but also with some sense of reciprocity and also not naively because we have to face that this whole idea of cooperation, this attitude that made Europe strong, this attitude that's our paradigm, so to speak, we live in and we act in and we make politics into, this attitude is not shared by the other parts or by many other parts of the world. Uh, not only talking about Putin, Russia and China, but also others. So that means we have to prove that cooperation will be the better way than confrontation. We have to keep our hand outreach to all of them, to seek for cooperation, but again, not naively, and that's why we have to defend ourselves and uh, also take care of security. They are two sides of the same coin. The strategic compass of the European Union, which is by far not only 
uh, a military document by Farnot. It's a document about uh, security in a broader sense when it comes to independence from supply chains from other parts of the world, independence when it comes to raw materials. This strategic compass uh, in the first place talks about China. And China is to be seen from the side of the European Union due to the strategic compass as uh, first a systemic rival, secondly a strategic partner, and thirdly an economic competitor. And th those three dimensions are to be seen at the same time always, let's say, on the same level. Because that's also an example for the mixture of, of cooperation and defense. Because this systemic rivalry is still there. It is even increasing from the side of China. Uh, and the reciprocity is by far not given. We are negotiating, have been for many years negotiating a so-called investment agreement with China. Uh, but uh, there is still absolutely no reciprocity in place. Chinese investments in Europe uh, will meet rule of law as we uh, hold it up, and uh, which is also, let's say, a, a, a trademark for Europe. The rule of law is in proper place within our continent, with some obstacles, <laughs> obstacles when I think about the Hungarian and the Polish government, but generally each investor on earth will find rule of law in proper place in Europe. It's quite the other way around in China. It's a rules-based system, that's what they call it, but by far no reciprocity. So if we seek for cooperation, we will also have to be frank with these parts of the world. And we will have to prove that it's better to keep peace up uh, and uh, not to lead into even more military aggression and, uh, and things like that. We live in times when we talk about peace, but uh, what I said about Putin, Russia is uh, not the only example for a war zone on our planet today. There are military conflicts of various kinds and also frozen conflicts with a lot of harm to many people. I visited Syria last year, Damascus. I visited Lebanon a few weeks ago. I was in Somalia uh, where Al-Shabaab militias are stronger than the government, actually, and the government has to be supported by all the free world as much as we can. And uh, even these days, it's hopefully far away from any kind of war, warfare, or military aggression, but the tensions are rising even very close to Austria, close to Central Europe in the Western Balkans these days. And uh, also, Israel has to defend its security these days, again, via defense military measures. If we want to hear that or not, this is also part of the reality we live in today. And this is one more reason why we need a Europe with more strength to the outside. And this is my, my final remark and also what I try to convey all the time. A Europe with more strength to the outside will convey the message to the world that cooperation would be the better way than confrontation. A Europe with more strength to the outside will also do more to meet the challenges of climate change on our planet. Because as the whole model of cooperation is not be seen on other parts of the world as we see it in Europe, also climate change is not seen as we see it in Europe in other parts of the world. So if Europe contributes more to a geopolitical scenario where those challenges will be met, 
also humanity will meet the challenges of climate change better because Europe alone will not do it. We are only 5% of the world's population. So uh, more strength to the outside for peace uh, in many different regards, and this is also connected with climate change, will be important. Not only the European Union is a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, as you all know, but also a few years ago the World Food Programme uh, has received the Nobel Peace Prize for good reasons, I would say. And the former head of the World Food Programme, David Beasley, always conveyed the second largest region a uh, second largest reason for, uh, for conflicts and for, let's say, situations where World Food Programme has to intervene is already climate change. Right after the still largest reason, uh, man-made conflict, the second largest reason is already climate change. So in a holistic view, we can see a Europe with more strength to the outside, more contribution to geopolitics, uh, a clearer voice to the world, also, a future European Commission, I guess we can already talk about that, it's less than a year uh, that a new European Commission will have to be formed, will have to be targeted more to the outside, more to foreign policies, geopolitics, uh, neighborhood, Eastern Partnership, Western Balkans, Northern Africa, Africa in its entirety, transatlantic relations, Middle East, even uh, Asia and our strongest partner South Korea there. So there will be many tasks for the European Commission to contribute to more strength to the outside and what I as a parliamentarian also would uh, always emphasize is with more freedom to the inside as well. So if we can target uh, EU policies, EU decision taking and EU, uh, EU administration in the executive branch, which would be the European Commission then uh, this will be the perspective to contribute to more strength to the outside, more freedom to the inside, and by that way, Europe can hopefully keep up uh, the peace within EU, hopefully achieve peace soon on all European soil and contribute to peace all over the world. This would be the perspective and this is what we all hopefully can work on properly. Thank you again for having me. Thank you so much, Lucas Mandel, for that keynote. In the spirit of integrating those different viewpoints that we're going to be looking at today, our next panel features experts from very different regions and very different backgrounds. And to introduce them, I am pleased to welcome on stage the director of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, Walter Kemp, who will be leading and moderating the panel. Thank you very much and good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. I have to say I'm a big fan of Schleining. I think that's why I was invited, not because I deal with organized crime at the moment. Uh, I used to work for the OSCE and we had a, a OSCE summer school here for many years, which I hope will return. Also, I won't be talking much this morning, so I wanna seize my opportunity to shamelessly pr promote a book that I wrote last year called Security Through Cooperation. And I think it's a nice bridge from what uh, Lucas Mandel was saying about the importance for cooperation, not for the sake of liberal internationalism, I would say, but in an interconnected world, the need for cooperation for the sake of realpolitik. 
My bad luck was that I launched this book on the 22nd of February last year. You could imagine that a lot of people said, maybe that's not the greatest timing. Other people said, well, we really need this book now. So the key word that keeps coming up in this book is reciprocity, and that we've seen throughout history the importance of reciprocity for actually promoting cooperation. It's not very fashionable to talk about peace these days. People like to talk about analyzing wars and risks and threats and so on. But we are going to talk about peace this morning and for the rest of the next few days. And we have uh, different perspectives from different parts of the world. And I'd like to ask the panel members to come up to the stage. There are quite a few of us. And actually, I would also like to invite Lucas Mandel to, to join us uh, at the end of the stage there to be part of our panel discussion. But if I could uh, ask Randa Slim to come up. Randa is the Director of Conflict Resolution Track to Dialogues program at the Middle East Institute. I think we can all squeeze in here. <laughs> Severin Otizer, who's Professor and Chair of Political Science at Barnard College, Columbia University. Nayachang Kuth Rambang Tai, who's Executive Director uh, at the Assistance Mission for Africa. <laughs> Ahmed Usal, Director at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. <laughs> and Yiki Zhou, Research Fellow at the Shanghai Institute for International Studies. So we have uh, about two hours. There's no designated coffee break, but I understand that there is coffee outside in about an hour, so don't run out yet. But I think uh, if you discreetly need coffee in a little while, please go out and come back very quietly. Um, we will go down the row here, talking uh, from different perspectives, different stories from different parts of the world on peace and efforts to make peace and challenges of making peace in a fragmented world. Each speaker will have about five to seven minutes. I will only cut you off if it goes too much longer, although there's no clock in here, but um, so that we also leave some time for discussion among the panel and for, for Q&A as well. So without any further ado, Randa, over to you. Thank you. Good morning, everybody, and it's an honor and a pleasure of mine to be here. Uh, thank you for the Austrian Center for Peace for the invitation, and it's really an honor to share this podium with the fellow panelists. Um, I come from the United States, although my work is focused on the Middle East. I work for the Middle East Institute, which is based in Washington, D.C., and my trade is mostly dialogues, track 1.5, track 2 dialogues, Right now, we are organizing three dialogues. One, it's a regional one that has been taking place since 2012, including the Arab countries, Turkey, Iran. Um, another one is talking, building on what our former panelists said, a US-Russia dialogue that's still going on despite what's taking place in the official relationship. And the third is, next to my colleague here, focusing on one of the most complicated relationships between two allies, the US-Turkey relationship. 
And so my, my, my takeaway is from these dialogues, from interactions with policymakers as well as with experts in the region. And I would like to start by talking, it's related to peace and peacemaking, but what I see as the two trends in the region, that in the MENA region, that are going to be shaping the region for the future and peacemaking. The first one is um, regional agency, and the second one is the geopolitical dynamics, particularly the US-China competition in the region. So in terms of regional agency, if there is one thing I want you to leave with about the Middle East today, is that there is this regional agency where countries in the region, leaders in the region, feel that it's up to them to solve their conflicts. Now, in some cases, it's good, but in other cases, like what's going to happen in the future, I think, in Sudan, it's going to be bad. But let's, let's, I mean, but this is, and this raises issues about mediation by other actors, by outside actors. What's their role when countries in the region take on themselves, not only for countries in Europe, but also for multilateral organizations like the UN? What's going to be their role if it's not a mediation role? So, and what has precipitated this regional agency? One, I think, is the Ukraine conflict, is the war, the Russian war in Ukraine. For the first time in decades, at least in two decades, the region is being affected by a conflict outside its geographical boundaries. And that has prompted this urgency among regional leaders to basically start saying, we have to take care of our own. I think the second factor is the feeling, prevailing feeling. Now, it's true or not, but it's a prevailing perception among regional policymakers that the US is deprioritizing the MENA, if not exiting MENA. And whether true or not, when you talk with US officials, they say, oh, look at our military footprint, look at our economic footprint, look at our you know, diplomatic footprint. It doesn't matter. Perception is politics. And the perception in the region is you are leaving. And that has prompted a lot of the leadership in the region to that affects their strategic calculus about conflict, about their role in the region. And the third, the strategy, this regional agency is driven by a de-risking strategy. The countries, especially in the Gulf, are focused very much on socio-economic development. This is the new ethos in the region. The importance of developing Vision 2330, Vision 2050, whatever it is. And that is, that's the focus. So it's important for them to eliminate any potential threat from the region as well as outside the region that affects this, this, this drive for socio-economic development. And if they have learned one thing from the Arab Spring, if they have learned one thing recently from the Iranian protest movement, is that unless you take care of the economics of the countries, you are going to have really major trouble. And so the, this trend is going to be here with us, it's going to affect us, and as I said, it has good things because we have been pushing people on the outside, people like me who belong to both parts of the world have been pushing the region and regional people and regional leaders to take care of their own problems and to start solving their own problems. And we are seeing a lot of fora, by the way, dialogue fora, official fora, emerging in the region. The bad thing about it, not many of them are inclusive. A lot of them are inclusive of sub-parties. But there is a lot of dialogue ethos, there is a lot of institutional underpinning of this dialogue ethos, which is good. But also some of it, as I said, we are going to see in Sudan a very bad, you know, how to say, regional agency at its worst going forward. And that's, that's something to keep in mind. The second point I want to quickly refer to, which is the inflection point where the region is today. Really, there is a, 
that it is at an inflection point. So you have both patterns of de-escalation, conflict management, is coexisting with conflict escalation and with potential for conflict escalation. And, and I think that's very much, again, impacted by, by, by part of the conflicts, which I agree with, with the previous panelists. Some of them are frozen. I mean, we can easily say that Libya, Syria, uh, Yemen are going to be frozen conflicts for a foreseeable future. You know, I, I don't see a way out. Sudan is going to be a major, major protracted conflict with major impact in terms of refugee population. We have had some, some, some good sides. You know, we have had some conflict resolution in one small area where we least expected, which is the maritime deal mediated by the Americans between Israel and Lebanon. And that was a transactional issue-specific conflict resolution process that did not deal with the underpinning of the conflict between the two countries, but it solved a specific issue because it was a win-win approach. We are going to see more of that. But the region itself, in my opinion, is at a stage now when we talk about detente between Iran and Saudi Arabia, which is the key, by the way. Solving the conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia is the golden key to de-escalation in the region. And so when you have that kind of detente taking place, primarily on the Saudi side because of their own interest, as I said, de-risking strategy, then I think it will have impact on the rest of the region. However, I think this detente is more right now of a tactical pose. It has not yet shifted to becoming a strategic realignment. We are yet in a period, a transition period, of testing the wills. Parties, Iran, Saudi Arabia, uh, Turkey, Arab countries, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Arab League, Arab countries with Syria, all of these things that are happening in terms of peacemaking, conflict prevention, really it's testing the wills of each other, whether they are willing to make the necessary concession to move into a more durable, transformative kind of peace process. And in this transition period, ugly things can happen and can derail the process. And so that's, that's where we are today. Uh, so, uh, so, um, so on one, as I said, one last hope that I would like to offer on terms of peace is that if there is a case for peace, I think uh, for peacemaking, I think, believe it or not, climate conflicts, resource conflicts, although they are very challenging, especially in a polarized environment, but they, because they lend themselves to technical approaches, they really have the most opportunities for conflict resolution. And the best case in place is the maritime border dispute. You know, I mean, even, even like the problem has always been to solving these conflicts is the political will or the lack of political will. If we take like the conflict between Egypt and Sudan, you know, on, on uh, and sorry, and Eritrea, the technical solution is there. It has already been found. It's the political will. It's the lack of political will on the side on the side of leadership. And so that's why when we talk about conflict resolution on resource conflict, it's important not to focus too much early on on the technical and forget, not forget, but not focus enough on the political challenges. So going forward, for example, on a conflict that is going to be big, in my opinion, on the water between Iran, Turkey, Syria, and, and Iraq, I think the problem technically, it can be found easy. The political will is not there yet to be to be to tackle it, and that's where I, I, I leave you with. Thanks very much. Um, so many questions already, and I'm inclined to jump in and ask them. But we have so many speakers, so please collect your questions. We'll come back to them. Um, Moritz, is this Chatham House, or yeah. this is going out to the world? It can, but we can check with you in case. Okay. Well, then. 
bear in mind that this is probably not under the Chatham House rule, but please feel free to be outspoken anyway. Um, let's go down the line. Ahmed, over to you. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, also, uh, I mean, Ahmed, as a Turkish scholar, we, I also, I'm also a sociologist, but focused on the Middle East for almost like two decades. I see, uh, you know, the situation. The Middle East is uh, in a mess. Uh, is uh, uh, fragmented. It has almost everything, uh, but suffering a lot. So, how to understand these uh, uh, brainstorming with you? Also, uh, we understand. I think the major problem is, of course, fragmentation and internal uh, conflicts is uh, uh, growing. Uh, because of that. Uh, secondly, and most importantly, I think the lack of democracy. Uh, people uh, don't decide uh, for themselves. And uh, so this uh, prevents uh, good governance. Uh, and at the end, if you don't have a good governance and uh, uh, social uh, and political control over the elites between the ruling uh, class and the ruled, you get uh, you know, negative results. And this prevents, of course, the development and uh, prosperity. And there is no peace uh, without prosperity, without development. I mean, this is my, my take. And we, we suffer from, I mean, sometimes, like let's take Iraq, for example. Uh, it has everything, even without oil and all this as a strategic location, can survive on trade like many other countries. But they have oil, they have gas, they have you know, even other natural resources are not touched upon and uh, can survive easily. They have young population. But with, of course, with American, of course, Saddam was not democratic uh, before, came with the coup, but it was toppled by, by like, coup, uh, our American or Western uh, intervention, and did not uh, build a good democracy, working democracy there. So it is still suffering, uh, and then uh, internal conflicts, and came the ISIS and stuff, and at the end, we still see Iraq is struggling. Also, the way, when it is designed, for example, it was not designed on the basis of citizenship, equal citizenship. It was designed first uh, Shia Sunni, then Sunnis also were divided between like Kurds and Arabs. So. It, this identity, somebody wants to get away, like in Lebanon also, uh, you know, it's the, the, the system is designed by ethnic and religious uh, identity or kind of compartmentalization, then if somebody wants to get away from this, cannot, because the second question some, you met with uh, Lebanese or Iraqi, you ask, are you Kurd, are you Shia, are you Sunni? So this prevents kind of citizenship uh, and equal... Uh, equal treatment or equal participation in the system. And then this uh, consolidates or reinforces the identity politics. And then uh, even like uh, if there is international uh, intervention from Iran or from uh, the Gulf, from Americans, you know, the, these uh, identity politics even were split more. We have pro-Iranian Kurds, we have anti-Iranian Kurds, we have pro-Iranian Shia, anti-Iranian Shia, Sunni is the same. So it is becoming like a really ungovernable, 
But if you just, yeah, I mean, provide, if um, I mean, after the uh, toppling of Saddam Hussein, if they established a good working, like a Western style of democracy, I think Iraq could, uh, could do well, it could have done a lot better, uh, because they have resources. They don't, they're not like Syria. They have resources. They have also the capacity, intellectual capacity is there with the Kurds, with the Arabs and others, even, you know, Shia don't want to be part of uh, Iran, but when America suddenly, I mean, Obama decided to quit, uh, then, uh, you know, Iran take over the, the country, like uh, Lebanon and uh, also like Syria. Uh, anyway, the other crisis, uh, just uh, to mention, uh, are similar. Uh, Somalia was a mess after American withdrawal and uh, Turkey, of course, and some other international communities, they did a good job afterwards to, to stabilize, uh, you know, voluntarily and still need a big support. Uh, Syria, unfortunately, is forgotten like Yemen because they don't have much resources. It is strategic. And in Yemen also we see, uh, we used to see more like uh, I mean, Iranian-Saudi or Iranian-Arab competition in Syria, in Yemen, in also uh, we have uh, we have Libya, for example, a different struggle for democracy, but did not get enough help. And still, these people are patient, and they they are. I mean, a new generation is growing with uh, with more conscious, with more open to the to the international community, international world. They are saying why we cannot achieve in, in Sudan. There is something about, I think, the either Red Sea or Horn of Africa, where we have more troubles, uh, like in, started with Somalia, uh, we have Yemen next door, we had uh, Ethiopia crisis, Tigray crisis, now we have Sudan. This region, I think, either geopolitics or something else, I see it more like geopolitics around the, the Red Sea, uh, that uh, maybe produces more international intervention or uh, kind of, uh, I mean, uh, not, I mean, not getting enough help from uh, outside. But this this region, which is very critical, you know, the Red Sea is is the backbone of uh, world trade, and somehow, you know, it is uh, not stable. And uh, of course, Turkey as a trading and industrial country, uh, more or less. Uh, I mean, they, they want a stable, more, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, shipping, the Turkey depends on exports a lot and tourism and other sectors, but at the end, they, we prefer uh, a stable, I mean, trade route and uh, also stable uh, and peaceful neighborhood, but also we suffer from, mostly from the southern region from the Middle Eastern conflicts, but now we have Ukraine also, that we suffered from it also with the, we, we realized how, how important was the Black Sea. Turkey uh, contributed to, uh, to mediate uh, between uh, Russia and Ukraine. Of course, we condemned the Russian invasion from the beginning when they were overlooking the Crimean annexation. Turkey had a, uh, had a very clear stance uh, and still we, we reject uh, the invasion uh, and we try also try to communicate with the, with the Russian side. Uh, 
on the grain deal, which helped a lot on the global uh, poverty and food shortages. It might, I mean, in, I am following the Ukraine crisis. Which, uh, I mean, Russia is dragging its foot more and more on the grain deal. I mean, we should be ready if uh, Russia doesn't renew the deal. I mean, so this would uh, hurt anybody, especially the African and poor uh, countries. Uh, saying that you know Russian grains are not allowed to, exp uh, to be exported, and this is a, I think going to be a, a recent problem. In the end, we we, we live in a uh, maybe chaotic region, chaotic uh, time of history, and I think these kind of dialogues are very very important. I also thank Morris for this and uh, all the team. Uh, this is very timely, and because we have so many changes, I also appreciate. Uh, uh, kind of dialogue between Saudis and Iranians, which is also, and I mean, the, I mean the, uh, otherwise we were suffering from uh, aggravation of uh, all crisis because everybody, I mean, pulling from the other side, from Iranian and Saudis, now they, they come to terms. I think it will help at least to lower the tension. I wish, uh, with Dr. Aranda, you know, we have the also regional mechanism that we six years ago we decided we discussed uh, such a mechanism here in uh, in this castle, uh, but still I think too far. I mean, I think regional without involving the regional actors that are also suffering or benefiting from these conflicts. Uh, I mean, I mean external. Uh, imposition of solutions would not maybe survive or would not last too long. At the end, we, uh, the, uh, the parties of these uh, conflicts also should be involved or should be convinced that a better future is possible. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. And this could be, again, a number of issues that we could come back to. You alluded to this idea of some kind of regional mechanism. People have referred to it as a kind of Helsinki process for the Middle East. That could be something that we could discuss. I was struck by uh, your point about regional agency, and yet you both mentioned the importance of rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, where China played a very important role. So it'd be interesting to come back to that. And um, I won't name names, but it seems that sometimes in the region, some of the Peacemakers are also troublemakers at the same time. <laughs> Spoilers. Spoilers. Definitely. Yeah. But let's have a different perspective now. It's not only states that are involved in making peace, it's also civil society and, and people. And uh, Severin Otizer has also just published a book looking at a kind of bottom-up approach to making peace. And she'll tell us a bit more about her views. Severin. Thank you so much, Walter, and thank you to the entire team of the Austrian Peace Forum for organizing this fantastic three-day conference and, <laughs> and giving me a mic that works, and also for inviting me this morning. Uh, there are so many people whose work I admire in this room that it's truly a privilege to have been invited to tell you a little bit more about uh, the latest finding of my latest book. Uh, as, Maurice, um, as Walter mentioned, uh, my book is called The Front Lines of Peace. And The Front Lines of Peace is a book about hope. It's a book about ordinary people and communities that have found effective ways to confront violence. And that's really important because more than 2 billion people 
live under the threat of violence in more than 50 conflict zones around the world. So peacebuilding is a crucial task for many states and international institutions like yours. But the thing is that our templates and techniques for approaching war and peace just don't work. And we've heard that already this morning several times. You know that more than half of all ongoing wars have already lasted for more than 20 years. In just the past five years, wars have spawned the worst refugee crisis since World War II. When you speak with the inhabitants of war-torn countries, you see that they are fed up with the apparent inability of governments, peacekeepers, international institutions to end violence. And there has been plenty of books and plenty of discussion about what has gone wrong when we've tried to stop wars in the past. But now I think it's time to ask what has gone right. Yes. And it turns out that elections don't build peace and democracy itself may not be the golden ticket, at least not in the short term. Contrary to what most politicians preach, building peace doesn't require billions in aid or massive international interventions. Instead, building peace involves giving power to ordinary citizens. Ultimately, many successful examples of peace building in the past few years have involved innovative grassroots initiatives led by local people and at times supported by foreigners, often using methods shunned by the international elites. So rather than focusing on field initiatives and on negotiations between presidents or um, handshakes between leaders of governments and rebel leaders or abstract peace agreements that were never implemented, the front lines of peace details the concrete everyday actions that actually make a difference on the ground. So some of these are bizarre, some are creative, some involve age-old traditions, and some are just common sense. My book explains how peace building can actually work so that we can finally improve the lives of billions of people. And I show that if we want to end violence from war, and also if we want to address violent conflicts at home, where the home is Paris, New York, Vienna, Bad or Nanterre, we have to fundamentally change the way we view and build peace. And I make this argument by building on more than 25, 25 years of work in 12 different conflict zones, so a lot of them in sub-Saharan Africa, like Congo, Somalia, etc. Um, and also, I include more than 800 in-depth interviews. And I also build on extensive work in North America and in Europe, because one of the important points is that all of the lessons we learn from conflict zones can help us address not only tensions in war zones around the world, but also the ethnic, political, social, economic tensions and racial tensions that divide our own communities in ostensibly peaceful countries. And of course, our states, governments, international institutions have an important role to play because we all know that real peace can last only when built both from the top down 
and from the bottom up. But the important point is that whether at home or abroad, we sorely need more individuals and organizations like the role models that I see in the room today and on the stage with me, and like the people that I portray in my book. We sorely need people like that to help the two billion people who live under the threat of violence in conflict zones around the world. So of course, all of these ideas are not magic ones, but because they take into account deeply rooted causes of conflict, they can definitely be game changers. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And I think uh, your last point about the importance of role models and so many people in this room, it's, it's so nice to be clustered here among so many people who are interested and active in peace. I think the challenge is to take that energy when we go out and talk to others who are more cynical or, or pessimistic in the world. Also, your point about the bottom-up, um, not at the exclusion of the top-down, but as a complement to, to working in both in all directions for peace. Next, we have Nian uh, Changkuth Tai, who's Executive Director, uh, Assistance Mission for Africa, to give us a perspective from your part of the world. Please. Thank you. Thank you, Walter. And thank you, the Austrian Study Center, for the opportunity and for organizing such a successful peace forum that uh, creates a space for different perspective on peace and conflict and also works as a, as a learning space for people from different backgrounds. Um, as he mentioned, my name is Nyashan Kwatai, <coughs> sorry, and I'm the executive director for Assistance Mission for Africa, and that's a civil society uh, organization based in South Sudan. We work on peace, conflict resolution, gender and social justice, as well as natural resource management. I will bring this a little bit home to the context of South Sudan, a country that gained independence recently in 2011, being one of the youngest countries in the world through self-determination. We fought the longest war in Africa because we wanted to be, you know, identified as people and as humans. We fought because we believe that South Sudanese are not supposed to live as second-class human beings. We fought for identity. And unfortunately, years later, after fighting, we started having our own civil war in our country, even you know, with all the efforts and the support from our friends and donor communities who have been you know, standing beside us all along. And today we have over 1.4 million displaced because of the 2013 and 2016 conflict. Bringing that back home into the root causes of conflict and how also other international communities, donors, and also how other friends play a role enduring their interventions, addressing these issues of conflict, I would say that we have a peace process that have been signed in 2014 as, you know, um, uh, a peace agreement. And later on, because of lack of political will, the peace process itself could not hold and it was not implemented. And then later on, the same peace process have been repackaged to revitalize peace agreement. And later also still, 
there is no political will. And then later on, it has been an extended two-year roadmap in which South Sudan is about to go for elections and still we can't implement the provisions that under our peace process includes chapter five on the revitalized peace agreement that talks of transitional justice, accountability, reparation, and healing. So when you look at that, political will plays a huge role in you know, having peace. But at the same time, also, international partners play a significant role in their interventions. And that brings me to talking about decolonizing interventions. We have examples of some peace interventions that are taking place. Because, for example, we have experts that think, okay, this method has worked in Congo. It must work in South Sudan. That's a different context, you know. Congo, South Sudan, different root causes, different conflicts. It doesn't mean that it has worked in a neighboring or a closed-door country. It will work on the same. Also, we normally forget something as essential as localization and the important role that local people play in solving and mediating their own conflict. Sometimes we, our role as civil society organizations, it should be organizing a safe space, supporting with resources to make sure that parties to conflict have that safe space to dialogue and to decide what is it that they want to get out of this mediation, what type of peace do they want, so at the end of the day they can have a sustainability aspect of that peace beyond the intervention of our you know, uh, efforts as civil society. And this takes us back also to the role international community plays. I'll give a, a, a simple example. We work in a, south, in a place in Southern Unity State and we have been dealing with issues of cattle raiding and revenge killing between two different communities. And these different communities, they believe so much in their traditional leaders. Some youth are willing to go cattle raid, you know, and risk their lives because there is a traditional leader and healer that told them, you go and cattle raid, you're going to be fine, nothing will happen to you. Do you expect that the same local people who have no idea about what is happening in the international context will stop cattle raiding because, for example, the Secretary General, Mr. Antonio Guterres, that they have never met, told them not to go? Of course, no, and this brings us to the influence local people play, whether in creating conflict or also in stopping it. And also that brings me back to another aspect that we normally forget. When we talk about conflict, we look at women as always the victims, and hence in South Sudan and other African countries, issues of gender equality actually at a stake because when we talk about negotiating peace, mediating, women are excluded from the table. I'll tell you in South Sudan when men are going to fight, women compose songs to give them moral support and courage to go and fight and they have an active role that they play. But when it comes to mediation, when it comes to putting women at the table where decisions are being made about conflict in their communities, they get excluded because of culture, harmful cultural practices, and because the society look at them as second class citizens. Coming to conclude, I hope I did not exceed my five minutes. It's important when it comes to mediation to take a local intervention and approach whereby local perspective is being put into consideration and also there is importance to use research. And when I talk about research, I'm not talking about experts who spend their life 
mostly in the Western world, and they come with a chopper flight and, you know, just collect data for seven days and travel back, and they'd be like, oh, this is what South Sudan need, and I think it's going to work. No, it's about also working with local researchers. I wrote a paper with Dr. Jan Pospisil about the blind spots and why we don't have, you know, enough expertise or localization in expertise when it comes to handling issues of conflict. And I think it's about time for all our efforts as civil society, as international partners, as different people and stakeholders who are working on conflict and peace resolution to make sure that we are working together. We are including the ordinary citizens that we think they might not play an influential role while actually in their communities, what they say and what they do actually matters. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I think that perspective uh, relates to so many other parts of the world besides Africa, the importance of uh, engagement of local actors, that granular local understanding, not least of the ecosystem of where things are going on, uh, the importance of a gender perspective, the importance of engaging youth and so on. So I think these are issues that uh, certainly have a broader resonance, so thank you for that. Our fifth speaker is Yiki Zhao from uh, Shanghai Institute for International Studies, but who also has an interest in the Middle East, I understand. Yeah. And uh, over to you for your views. Thank you. First, thanks to, to the Austria Center for Peace for inviting me to this very wonderful conference on the peace, and also in this very special and interesting venue. Uh, I was I heard that this type of castle in the medieval mid, medieval ages was mainly used for the military means as a fortress. But now we are having a peaceful room in this castle. I think this demonstrates the power of the peace. <laughs> and also because I think maybe, I'm not sure, maybe I think I'm the only one from China to participate in the first time like a peace forum. So I think maybe, and also as a lot of you have already viewed that maybe China is behaving like more and more active in the engaging of the different security affairs in the current world. Uh, I think I will just want to briefly like to introduce some of my own thoughts on the, we say, the China's understanding of the, the current, we say, the new way to engage in the security affairs in the, uh, in the world. And also because I think, uh, I think you have also, real, maybe you have known that uh, China this, uh, this year has successfully do a mediation between the, uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, probably this could be regarded as the first time in the modern Middle East history that a non-Western power can mediate something that initially it was still successful <laughs> in, this, in this region. Uh, so I want to just combine these things together. I think if we combine this together, I think there will be four elements for China's engagement in the security affairs. One thing, as I think, maybe as a very important premise that the Chinese China think is the respect of the territorial integrity and the sovereignty. Actually, just as our very keynote speaker who have done this also stated very well in his keynote speech, of course, there's a, everyone told that there should be a kind of negotiation for all kinds of conflict. But I would say in the current world, and even though we do want to cooperation, there's still some premise. And the premise, I think, also I heard from yesterday, there's a lot of people are talking about there should be a ruler-based international order. And I would say in this type of the increasingly polarized world, there's one international order that both sides will agree. 
which is the respect of the territorial integrity and the sovereignty. That's uh, one thing. Actually, then we come to the Middle East. I would say maybe one advantage for China to engage in this region is China so far don't have any military bases in this Middle East region. And also that China do not have that kind of history of the military intervention in that, in that region. So that may make the regional actors view China as the one which may respect their sovereignty. I think this is one of the advantage for China to engage in the Middle East, that kind of the reapproachment between Saudi and Iran. And the second point is I would call it maybe a negotiation model based on the partnership. First, on the premise of the respect of the territorial and sovereignty, then under this premise, we should strive or seek our best to use the way of negotiation to solve different kind of the conflict. I would say even the, the current the Saudi and the Iran, they are, this type of conflict is rising from the so-called expansion of the Iran in this region. And then Saudi Arabia needs to do something to contain this type of rise of the Iran in this region. And they are doing a lot of like proxy war. Because I also followed the, in the Middle East for some so several years, because I will say maybe several years ago, even before the COVID, COVID when we talked with the, our friends and partners in the Western world, a, quick, a frequent question we usually encounter is that, will China pick a side? Because China's policy has always been on the non-alignment policy and trying to maintain a partnership diplomacy with both Saudi Arabia and Iran. And just before the, several years ago, when the Saudi Iran Saudi and Iran are in a very, a very tension, a high tension. A question we face is always that current the partnership of China cannot be sustainable. You must pick a side in the end. But finally, it seems that nowadays, especially given what we have witnessed this year, I would say still a partnership is still a pretty important thing because it can be a way, like become the friends of the both two sides, can also be, make the third party a way to try to foster a, a negotiation among two sides. And China also believes that there should be no, we say, a kind of a ultimate military solution for all kinds of conflict. This is also the second point. This is the second point. And the third point, and also maybe this is also my personal point, I, maybe I want to share with you is also listen to your opinion, it's like probably, especially in this, we say, very fragmented world, or we say polarized world, we should try to find some middle ground. Because I would say, from a geographically, <coughs> I would say a lot of regions in the world, they don't want to get engaged in those so-called, we say, the systematic rivalry between like China and the West. Maybe I would say maybe Middle East, maybe even Africa. People in their day of peace, they don't want to like that kind of conflict anymore. And they have their own agenda. It's not like the whole world affairs is needed to be dominated by the, just the US-China rivalry or we say the Ukraine war. They have their own agenda. Africa have your own, own agenda. And the Middle East, they have like 20, 30 agenda. They want to have more prosperity, economic prosperity. They want to have like more peaceful local conf conflict. They want to have a peaceful solution to the local conflict. They have their own agenda. I would say, the one way, if you see the China's successful mediation of, uh, in this kind of the Saudi, between Saudi and Iran, I don't think China is not that kind of the force two sides to the negotiation table. Actually, it is because the regional actors, that kind of the peace, 
process starts from the, its regional momentum, right? It's before the China gets in, it's the Oman and the Iraq. They have started this kind of mediation between these two parties. And both Iran and Saudi Arabia, after years, years of the fighting, they found that military solution is not possible. And we want to find something, like both sides want to, okay, we need to find something else. Maybe not cooperation, but at least to bring some, maybe focus more on the economic development. I would say in this regard, I think such kind of desire of the becoming a middle ground between in this polarized world should not be ignored. I think the successful mediation of the China in the Saudi and Iran is because China viewed this opportunity in this Middle East regions in China and also because of its traditional history. So China happens also become also viewed by the regional actors as a reliable mediator in this part. And the fourth thing I would still say is it's maybe probably we still need to think about nowadays people when people are talking about like peace building, peacemaking, the theory is always the liberal peace theory, which I think this certainly I'm not saying this is not good. I think it also contributes a lot of for people's understanding of the peacemaking. But there's also another thing. Actually, I also learned this from yesterday keynote speech from the ambassador from the EAS, which about the indivisibility of the he she mentioned about indiv indivisibility of the human rights, that developmental rights and the political rights should be combined together. Actually, in China nowadays, people are more and more talking about the so-called developmental and security theory or developmental peace theory, which means that the peace, of course, there should be more things, a lot of things about just, a lot of things about representative rights, but there also be another thing which is about the development. There must be a kind of a way for the economic development so that to provide more public welfare to be divided by the, each party. But of course, I'm also not saying maybe only economic development will be a way for peace. Sometimes it can even ruin peace. But then it must be accompanied by a kind of a fair way to distribute or the economic gains. This will be also another important story. And I would say in the Middle East part, I think China is the one thing, although China doesn't do a lot of with the military, they engage in the, in the Middle East affairs, but in the last decade, China engaged Middle East very actively through all the economic means. I think this has also become a leverage for China to engage in the mediation between Saudi and Iran. So yes, I think this is my just a very short presentation of my opinion. I look forward to learning from you. Thank you very much. Thank you, and so many ideas in such a short period of time, many of which we could pick up on this idea of is there a middle way between, you know, relations between Russia and the West, between the US and China, our countries always forced to take sides, the importance of the link between peace and development, um, and I can't resist, somebody apparently once asked Confucius, what is one word that you should live your life by? And he said the word reciprocity. <laughs> so we come full circle about the need for um, trust and confidence between countries in a very interconnected world. So I misspoke at the beginning. Apparently this session goes till 11.15, not 11.45. So we have less than an hour. Um, that's the bad news. The good news is that we get coffee sooner and we can continue the discussion <laughs> informally. I know that some of the panel members have points or questions for each other. I also have a question for Lucas, but I know that many of you have questions and issues that you'd like to raise. So 
If the panel can be disciplined, I thought we could do a kind of short snapper round that uh, if you have one question, but like 30 seconds for somebody else in the panel or an observation that you'd like to make based on um, what somebody else has said. But if we can go in the opposite direction and ask, you know, if I can ask Lucas, um, we hear more and more about the European political community and we also see that Europe is increasingly taking a role in mediation within Europe, but also among countries that are not part of the EU. So um, in with Kosovo, in the South Caucasus, with Moldova and so on. Do you see potentially the European political community as having a peacemaking role, or is it just a talk shop at this point? I'm optimistic on it. A European political community was invented, to be very frank, uh, in my view, uh, by Emmanuel Macron uh, due to several reasons, but uh, let's say the, the meta theme would be nothing is ongoing with enlargement. We experience these days the longest period of time in EU's history without any enlargement step, but with Brexit. So we got smaller and uh, Croatia, the youngest member state, uh, has been a member already for 10 years now. So maybe this was one reason. The other reason was that the French presidency of the uh, European Council was uh, covered more or less by Russia's war. And this is also why, let's say, the focus for uh, enlargement or at least neighborhood policy Macron intended to conduct during this presidency was not possible. So this was the reason why it was founded. I highly appreciate it uh, because it's better than not to connect. And as you have mentioned, uh, it covers uh, Europe nearly in its entirety, from UK to Switzerland to even Armenia and Azerbaijan, countries of the Eastern Partnership, Georgia, Ukraine, Republic of Moldova and others. I miss the freedom movement of Belarus. It's the only European country that's not covered and uh, I have proposed several times already to include them uh, with an observer status, for example. Uh, and this, this could be very positive and this is a way how Europe can become stronger to the outside. And this was one of my points, and I guess that's the major objective when it comes to peace building and to geopolitics from Europe's side to, to gain more strength to the outside. Uh, not to be too long, I have uh, taken a lot of notes. I have learned a lot from, from the other panelists. Uh, I want to add one expression, and that's the expression of human dignity. Uh, because uh, in the end, when it comes uh, not only to, let's say, political and diplomatic decision takers, but each and everybody, uh, the whole idea that each person would be worth the same, absolutely, and that there would be no doubt on that, and each person would be unique. Uh, this whole idea is a precondition for sustaining peace uh, in each and every respect, and maybe this, this is a, an idea, a philosophy, actually, uh, we, we could implement and we, we are meant to implement in the various different fields. Uh, and in order to not leave it out, in my view, the only uh, clearly positive geopolitical development of this century yet are the Abraham Accords. Just wanted to make this point since we were talking a lot about the Middle East. This is something and this can uh, lead to long-lasting peace. Uh, in a region where the, the other perspective was always given. And uh, I'm advocating a lot, and if I may, I would ask you to, to also do it with uh, EU member states, especially for uh, the ban of nuclear weapons treaty, 
Um, among the EU member states, only Ireland, Austria and Malta are in favour of it. In the European Parliament, we are a bit more. We are nearly half of the European Parliament voting for this treaty, or more than one-third, to be frank, but much more than only these three small countries. And due to many different reasons. Of course, nuclear weapons can't be prohibited only partially. It must be, let's say, a common decision of, of humanity to do it. Uh, and last point, because I missed it out before, if I can recommend something, have a clearer look into the 10 points peace plan of President Zelensky, because it's pretty reasonable. Uh, it's, uh, it's in a very clear language. It covers from grain, since we're sitting here, from grain to missed persons, many different fields, 10 points peace plan. And it's, in my view, I don't know why, it's pretty much underestimated in the public debate, uh, this, this Zelensky peace plan. Maybe this is something we can refer to in our immediate neighborhood. Thanks very much. Uh, Mr. Zhou, do you see a, a role for China in the peace process for Ukraine? Oh, that's a very, very tough, tough question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I think China so far, the policy is, I think China has been more active in mediating the Ukraine conflict, like sending the special envoy like to the Ukraine and to the other parts. And also the president of China has talked with the, some kind of, also with the president Zelensky in the Ukraine. I think China do want to play more role. I think China's current policy for the Ukraine is China want to play a role in mediation, but I think China also, on the other hand, don't want to be seen as a role who, has in, who are engaged in the conflict, which means the military, the actual the military conflict, like trying to maintain a balance. Yeah. Ms. Tai, any questions or comments based on observations of the other panelists? Uh, you don't have to, we can... Well, um, I don't really have a specific question, but I'm just interested more on her book, the one she wrote, because I, I can see many similarities, especially emphasizing on how you know, conflict can be handled you know, at a local you know, level and how localization is important and to hear from the people. So it will also be interesting to see these findings and how, you know, she got the inspiration on writing about this book in particular. Mm -hmm. and I think this is one of the benefits of this forum, is to bring people together and share notes and network yep. by each other. <coughs> Severin. Thank you. That's exactly, exactly what I was going to use my two minutes that I have now, is to reflect how in sync you and I are. Um, it's like, as I was hearing you talk, I was thinking about what Walter said afterwards, that what you, says, what you said represents not only what happens in South Sudan, but really what happens all over the world. So as I said, I've, I've worked in, in many different conflict zones, including South Sudan, uh, but also Congo, Afghanistan, Kosovo, Somalia, Cyprus, Timor-Leste, etc., etc. And uh, there are two things that I want to emphasize that particularly resonated with me in, in what you said. Uh, the first one is the failure of our traditional approach to building peace. What I call in my work the Peace Inc. approach, uh, our traditional conventional approach that relies on governments, on states, on international institutions, on outsiders, uh, and that usually excludes, as you say, local activists and ordinary citizens. 
And what I show in my book is that the peace in conventional approach to peace building relies on many misleading and detrimental assumptions, like the idea that only a top-down intervention can end armed violence. The idea that all good things come together. So for instance, that elections will naturally lead to peace. And the idea that only outsiders, like myself, people based in headquarters and capital cities, have the required skills and expertise to build peace. And so I've, I've, I've written several books um, in the past to, to, to talk about this approach and, and all of the limitations with our conventional approach to peace building. And, and we've heard a lot about that already in, in this uh, conference. But I think that now we really have to focus on what we, we, we really have to stop focusing on the challenges, the issues, all of the problems, and we have to learn from what works. And so these past few years, I've looked for cases of what I call unlikely peace, places where everything conspires to cause violence, and yet somehow you have peace. And I've found places like that all over the world. So I've found places like that in Afghanistan, in Congo, in Colombia, in Israel and the Palestinian territories, in Somalia. Um, and, and that's basically what I, what I show in my book, is that we can learn a lot from all of these successful cases of peace building, because there are a lot of people, ordinary citizens, uh, local activists, also international interveners, people working for the United Nations, for non-governmental organizations, from different uh, diplomatic organizations. There are people who use out-of-the-box, non-conventional approach to peace building, and who really manage to, to make a difference at the highest level, in capital cities, in the high-level negotiations, and also on the ground. And I think that, as, uh, as you mentioned, we need to listen a lot more to these people. We need to study what they do right, and we need to learn from them. Again, not only to end violence in conflict zones around the world, but also because for us people who are lucky enough to, to live in an ostensibly peaceful country, and I just flew from Paris, so that's why I say ostensibly peaceful, uh, we can learn a lot from people in conflict zones to resolve all of the tensions that divide our own communities. Thanks very much. Um, I don't want to open a discussion, but on the way in yesterday from the airport, I shared a car with Jean-Paul Chamy, who I'd never met before. And within like two minutes, we were talking about peace, because he said, and I don't want to misquote him, but he said, well, everybody's interested in peace. And I said, I don't think so. I think there are a lot of people who actually profit from instability. And my only caveat to the bottom-up approach is that there are basically bad local actors as well with their own agenda, and then the challenge is what to do about them. But we could have a whole workshop about this. Absolutely, there are bad local actors just like there are bad international actors, just, yeah. just that there are bad national actors. It's not a reason to ignore local citizens. No, no, no. Um, so again, we, I mean, we can have a whole discussion about that, but I've written a whole book about that. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. I just wanna... Add the woman touch is very critical, and I see a lot of ladies also joining this peace, uh, you know, initiative. Of course, uh, women are suffering from 
these conflicts a lot uh, with their children dying, with as, uh, also war crimes like rape and other stuff. I, I think women, women's role is very critical in also seeking solution uh, or uh, promoting peace. I want to mention also the, you know, kind of uh, indifference before for the what the Russians did in Syria and Libya before Ukraine. We have to also question ourselves that also produced a lot of Russian bombing in Syria, produced a lot of refugees, and we suffer from that. You suffer from that, and also these uh, refugees and immigration, illegal immigration especially, that is also. Uh, target for illegal organizations and smuggling and uh, other uh, crimes. Uh, I mean, promotes organized crime also uh, uh, is a serious issue that we can discuss. Uh, so uh, it's, it's a mixed and complicated uh, situation, but uh, overall, uh, uh, we as also connecting East and West Turkey suffer from all these uh, refugees and terror and all this. So that's, that's why Turkey is involved. I mean, briefly, I want to add uh, to my initial ideas. Thank you. Thanks very much. And I, it seems an obvious thing, but when you talk about gender and then you also talk about youth, women and young people together make up 75% of our populations. So it's, it's not, uh, you know, just looking at the issue of gender and the gender perspective, it's looking at the majority of people in society. And I think this is something um, which is lacking when we talk about the importance of inclusion in peace processes or mediation more generally. And on your last point, we've been mostly talking about states or civil society, but slowly, slowly we see the privatization of the security space, either armed, violent, non-state actors, terrorists or criminal groups, but also then private security companies. Proxy. Wagner, Proxy Wagner gets a lot of attention. Proxies Sorry? also take don't, Proxies, don't take yeah. that this is, all, all, all they yeah. do. And that the biggest category now of armed conflict is civil wars with the engagement of external actors. So this is something we might want to come back to. But Rhonda. Thank you very much. I would like to build on points that have been mentioned uh, throughout this. I'm, I'm not going to take too long. So the first point, Abraham Accords, totally with you. I think it was a definitely changing development. However, looking at it without looking at the Palestinian issue, mm. I think is not going to go far. And we have seen the Negev Forum at the ministerial level is blocked, partly because of the right-wing Israeli government policies. They were supposed to have a meeting in Rabat. It's not going to happen. The technical groups are meeting, but the ministerial level is blocked, and especially with what's going on now in Jenin. So as long as we have this kind of provocation, this kind of settlement activity, this kind of you know, loosening the engagement rules between by the Israeli police and the Israeli army to the Palestinians. The Abraham Accords will remain you know, at the technical economic level, but they are not going to lead to the kind of transformative peace that we hope, and especially that the Palestinians are not at the table. I mean, without the Palestinians at the table, I, I don't know how this can proceed further. It's going to be stuck where it is. On the, on the China thing, I totally agree with my colleague from the Shanghai Institute. The agreement between, uh, between uh, the Iranians and the Saudi based on detailed discussion I had with Iranian and Saudi officials. By the time, I mean, 
Iraq with the good offices it provided, Oman with the good offices it provided. The agreement was pretty much finalized in terms of contents by December 2022 when President Xi came to Saudi Arabia. The two sides, the Saudi and the Iranians, were looking for a guarantor. Iraq was not going to be the guarantor. Oman cannot be the guarantor. US definitely cannot be the guarantor. And so China became the guarantor. The problem with the guarantor role, and I don't know if China, how China is thinking this. So when you come at, I know the agreement has not been published, but I know the content of the agreement. It is really a gentleman's agreement. I mean, there are no enforcement mechanisms in the contents of the agreement about what's going to happen when a certain clause in this agreement is violated. Who's going to enforce it? What's the role of the guarantor in enforcing it? And so that's, that's now, herein lies the problem and the long-term consequences for China as a mediator. You know, if you are going to be the enforcer without mechanisms of enforcement agreed upon by the parties, that's going to be difficult to, to see how it happens. That's one. The, on the US-China competition in the Middle East, I don't know if one, the area, in my opinion, in the world where we can see US-China cooperation in the midst of the strategic competition, it is the Middle East. Because the US and China have overlapping interests in the Middle East. Interests like non-proliferation, interests like regional stability, counter-terrorism, but we disagree on definition of what is counter-terrorism and who are terrorists. And then, of course, ensuring free access of cheap oil, you know, right? And, and on all of these, I think both the US and China agree. And right now what you have, and, and on one hand, China is, free, is basically free riding America's security umbrella in the region. And on the other hand, China has no hege hegemonic ambitions in the Middle East, none whatsoever. So what I can see is the possibility, thinking outside the box, of the US leveraging this kind of security umbrella, this kind of shared interest, to really move into some kind of a, I'd say, collaboration in the Middle East with China. And by the, by, by the way, that, that's what the US did in the 70s in its detente with the Soviet Union. It's exactly the same strategy, which can be replicated now with China in the midst of all this talk of strategic competition. Last point, last point, women. Women, this is a pet peeve of mine. Because when I started in this field, in track two, in the old days, in the 1990s, in one of the oldest US-Soviet dialogue known as the Dartmouth Conference, I was the only woman at the table, okay? Now I, I moderate, I convene three track two, I insist 50% of the participants in, in my room are women. It's important that you put women in leadership position. It's important that you have women at the big table. And that's my pet peeve now about the UN processes, mediation processes in the Middle East. This creation of separate room for women to include women in the mediation process. Separate is not equal. Yes. And having women in separate rooms without having any kind of feedback loop in terms of, you know, ideas and, and being there at the decision-making table. And I've seen it because I was part of the, I, I mean, I was an advisor to the UN team mediation in Yemen in, in, in 2015, 2016 in Kuwait. So I saw that, I saw that in, 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 you know, at close distance. So these separate rooms for women are just, let's check the box. We have women at the table, you know, in negotiation. But really, 
They have no power whatsoever. I mean, their ideas are not considered. And again, I want to go back. This goes back all the way to the civil rights movement in the United States. Separate is not equal. If you put women in a separate room, it's not equal to the men at the big negotiation table. I'll stop here. Okay, we have about half an hour and uh, a lot of interested faces and hands going up. What I will do is I'll collect questions, about three or four, give the panel an opportunity to respond. If you're asking uh, a question, maybe you could say who you're directing it to. And what would also be helpful is if you briefly introduce yourself and keep it to a relatively short question and not a five-minute monologue. Um, these two ladies first, and then this gentleman, and Angela King. Thank you very much. My name is Annika Hansen. I'm from the Center for International Peace Operations, CIF, in Berlin. And I'm also a member of the International Advisory Board of the Austrian Center for Peace. Um, thank you so much for this fantastic uh, panel and all the interesting uh, points. I could follow up on many, but in order to keep it short, I wanted to follow up on one remark uh, that uh, Randa Slim made, that um, Sudan seemed to be sort of a regions, uh, regional agency at its worst. And I wondered if you could um, elaborate a little bit and maybe say what, in your view, regional agency at its best might be in Sudan. Thank you. Thank you. The lady right beside you. Bettina Muscheid, like my colleague here, a member of the board, and I work for the EU, was a former EU ambassador to Yemen, Libya, and Nicaragua, and have a sort of question directed to two groups here. I heard so much innovative thinking at local level, and peace can emerge from there. At the same time, I heard technical solutions are there, but the political level will not follow. So could this, these two groups um, try to come together and tell us how could we connect the grassroots with the politicians and perhaps then even the donors would come up with the money to fund the technical solutions and peace could make progress. I would like to hear more about the missing link between these two. Thank you. Or since you're over there, maybe Angela Kahn. I'm Angela Kane, and I'm the uh, vice president of the IIP, which cooperates with the ACP, and I'm also on the board. Uh, very hard to limit myself to two issues, but I do want to do two issues. And one of them is going back to Lukas Mandel, who said that we have to talk to the other Russia. You know, we have to talk to Russia in general. And that brings me back to Ahmed Oysal, who talked about the grain deal. I think the grain deal is extremely important. And you talked about that Russia would probably not extend it because they couldn't export their own grain. But Russia's grain can be exported because it's a humanitarian supply issue. It's humanitarian supply, particularly going to North Africa, but why they can't export it is really the impediment of the sanctions because of the SWIFT and also because of the insurance issues. And I think that there should be an entry point where basically countries, particularly from the West, US, European Union, can enter into making it easier because it's a way of getting into a conversation, getting into a discussion with Russia and giving them something because reciprocity, which I think was also mentioned in terms of Confucius, I think you, Walter, mentioned it, very, very important that we have also something to offer. That's 
that's my first question, what can be done? And the second question goes to Yiji Chu about uh, the Middle East and China. And you talked also about, you know, we don't have bases there, etc., etc. But let me mention one aspect that hasn't been mentioned here. Iran has been mentioned, but the JCPOA has not been mentioned. China was a party to the JCPOA, and I have not heard anything about what China did to assist the efforts, particularly of the European Union, when Trump had left the JCPOA in order to reinstate it or to help it move along. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how does China see assistance in this deal in which they were a party of in terms of furthering it to bring more, let's say, advancement in this issue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Hassam Zaki. I'm the Assistant Secretary General uh, at the League of Arab States. Um, uh, actually, this is not a question, and it's not addressed to any member of the panel, but it is uh, at the same time addressed to all. This is a conceptual uh, comment. Um, when we talk about conflicts, uh, I think uh, for all of you and for all those who are here in the room, we have to make some kind of differentiation between uh, the conflicts that are not based uh, or have do not have a geopolitical, uh, geostrategic uh, character and the conflicts that are uh, local in nature or do not have such a, 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 an aspect. Why do we say that? Because the gap that exists always between those who try to make peace uh, at a local level and the fact that this conflict can or cannot be resolved lies always in uh, the answer to this question. Whether it is a geopolitical uh, conflict, we know for sure that the, 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 the answer to this question is going to be a top-down answer. There is no bottom-up answer in a geopolitical... Okay, please differ and please explain to me that I'm wrong. And, and in, some, in a variety of local conflicts, this, this bottom-up uh, approach is, uh, is perhaps the only way to reach peace. It is a very viable way to reach peace, and it has been proven uh, to be um, uh, a good way out and a fantastic way to include all the local actors in resolving uh, the conflict. I say this because in, in the region, of course, where, we, where I come from in the Arab world, all those, and we are, we are cursed with this, unfortunately, any and each type of conflict that uh, 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 erupts in this region has a geopolitical stamp on it, and it quickly becomes, even if it doesn't start as, as a geopolitical conflict, it turns to be a geopolitical conflict very fast, uh, either by the effect of uh, regional uh, uh, intervention or international intervention. That's why it is important always for us to talk about east-west uh, relations and uh, the international uh, context and so on, because we need to have a better international environment. When the international environment is so polarized, it makes it very, very difficult for the conflicts in, in the region such as ours to be, uh, to be resolved. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. So we have four, sort of five questions there. Um, what would regional agency at its best look like in Sudan? 
how do you link the grassroots with the top down if one is working and one isn't? How do you engage with Russia, for example, in relation to building on the grain deal? Um, and what was the um, view of China vis-a-vis -vis the JCPOA? And then the idea of the relationship between local conflicts and geopolitical issues, the local and the global. I don't completely agree with you, but I think others might also have views. I think that it's not always linear. You could have a very big conflict in a country which the international community loses interest in. Uh, for example, in, in Yemen or Libya, and then what do you do? Who mediates that kind of situation? But let's take those again with very short answers so that we can have another round. But maybe if we go down this way, Miranda. Um, I mean, this question brings me back to the conflict in Tajikistan between 1992 and 2000. Uh, there was a UN mediation process, but there was a US-Russia track 1.5, of which I was a member on the US mediating team. Um, and what eventually ended the conflict was having the Tajiks from the government and the opposition sitting with the contact group, a regional contact group, you know, of all the actors from the region, as, you know, who, as well as the Americans and the Russians, sitting together, like, it's like a fishbowl, and they will be outside, and then the inside, it will be the Tajikistani. The agreement was stuck by the Tajikistani, but it took a lot of negotiations to bring the contact group into agreement about the outlines of the end of the conflict, what, how the conflict should end. I think that's what's needed when it comes to regional agencies. That right now, for example, you have Saudi Arabia along with the US trying to you know, do this dialogue between the two conflicting parties in Sudan. And I have to say, Sudan is, is going to make Yemen look like nothing. Okay? I mean, if the Yemen conflict is complicated, wait until to see how the Sudan conflict is going to, you know, it's going to implicate, you know, Egypt, so implicating the, the, the Gulf, uh, UAE, you know, definitely, and, and, and um, you know, Africa, I mean, Chad is, is super involved in this. I mean, we are seeing just the beginning of a conflict that's going to be really have major repercussions, major repercussion in East Africa and also for the Arab region and particularly for Egypt, particularly for Egypt. It's a big headache. So what I see is, is somehow we need to bring these regional actors in agreements among themselves first, you know, to come together on what is a conflict ending mechanisms and what are the contours of that agreement between the local parties. Granted, it's going to take a long time. I mean, you know, for example, it was very clear to me when I was part of the UN team in, on, on the Yemen mediation in Kuwait, and have had a long time sitting with the Houthi leadership at the time, just talking about everything, you know. And, I mean, I left those negotiations saying the Houthis' calculus at the time, and in my opinion remains today, is that time is going to be on their side. They are not going to negotiate. Although the deal that was on the table, and I don't know how many of you know the contents of that deal that was put on the table in 2016, it was a very good deal. Not because I was part of the negotiating team or mediation team, but it was a very good deal. I have to say it was a very good deal and gave the Houthis really at the time the best 
possible. And yet they walked away from the deal because their calculus is we have to wait a bit longer. We can get even a better deal. We can get a better deal. And today the Houthis are exactly in the same mentality. We can wait a bit longer. And, and I think the, right now the calculus of the Sudanese parties is that time is going to be on our side. We just have to ride it out, have to wait. So the question is how you change that, that calculus, how you change the incentive structures, you know, to make war costly and to make peace more beneficial. That's the trick that mediators, and unless you have that agreement among the regional stakeholders, regional agency at its best, it's going to be a regional agency at its worst. And we are seeing that already. You know, the UAE funding the Hamadi force, you know, the Saudis and the Egyptians working with the armed forces. And, you know, this can continue, as I said, for a long time. And as I said, in terms of refugees, oh, I mean, Sudan is going to be the mother of conflicts for refugees in the region. So. Ladies, do you want to address the uh, grassroots versus top-down yeah, sure. Uh, thank you, Ambassador, for the question. How do we link the grassroots to the national and, let's say, international levels? I will say inclusion. I'll say inclusion and I'll say when we are creating budgets and projects, it's important to know that the success of our projects depends on having a holistic approach where the right people are included in the room. Let's say the peace agreement for South Sudan, the EGAD, the African Union, we had all these international mediators. People went to Addis several times for negotiations. They failed. They moved to Khartoum by then with the former presidents for Sudan for, again, negotiations. And then they came back because it was lacking a proper inclusion of the local grassroots and also the local perspectives. And we had the last attempt in Addis whereby our leaders had to rush and got the traditional leaders from different spaces and brought them to Addis finally to be part of the process. It's because they realize inclusion is important. Taking it back, in South Sudan, we have issues of oil pollution. Women and children are getting affected the most. Women are giving birth to deformed children because of the effect of these chemicals. And when you find committees are being you know, formed to investigate, to come up with solutions, strategies, women are excluded. And an example is you can have a room full of men calling them expert on menstruation. They have never experienced that. They don't know what's happening with women's bodies. So they can't actually give solutions. You have to be in the shoes of somebody. You have to experience something in order for you to know what will actually work for you. So I'll take it back to creating budgets to include these people, even if it means having people to translate in national, international spaces for them to be able you know, to speak up and also include their perspective of how they want their issues to be handled in form of conflict, in form of peace, of how they want you know, a specific peace that can work in their context. And I will take it back. Normally, we have budgets for other things. We have budgets for conferences. We have budgets you know, to travel and fly people to different places. But when it comes to the needs and specific things that can actually support us implement and have like you know a proper outcome 
we normally tend to shy away and create excuses of lack of budgets. So let's make these budgets speak to the situation on the ground, to the needs, but not to our needs, and put ourselves as people who are just coming to mediate and who are going to listen to what these people need, and we bring them together. One last thing is, um, normally it's difficult, yes, to bring people from the grassroots together with politicians. Now we are at the phase where our political parties are campaigning for elections. As I'm talking to you today, our president, he's in a place called WOW, and that's a grassroots. Why? Because he needs to talk to the people. Election is coming up. So we have budgets, you know. We have time when we want to talk to people about voting, about what we want as politicians, as people with influence. But we don't have budgets, we don't have time when it comes to handling things properly. So I think it is possible to create that space and safe space for people at the national and the grassroots and also international level to come and sit together and speak. And at the same time also to create that safe space in a way that these people are protected and they have that space to speak their mind you know, without them having to experience any form of violence or any threat in any way, and because that's a human right. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to elaborate on that uh, and, and bring in uh, the comment from, from our last uh, speaker. Um, I think this idea that we have top-down conflict and bottom-up conflict, and they are very distinct, is something that we learned in the 90s. Uh, but since then, theorization of uh, international relations have proved that this is actually an inaccurate understanding of conflict. And I refer you to the work of, OK, I'm a theoretician of, the, of international relations. I love talking about that. Uh, and I refer you to the work of Statis Kalivas and all of his students and followers for the past 20, 25 years. And that any local conflicts have international dimensions and at the same time any top-down geopolitical international conflict does have local dimensions as, as well. So we cannot think anymore about conflict as either being international or national or provincial or local. We have to think about conflict as being all interconnected. Um, and when you talk, you, you were talking about the Arab world as being like the region in the world where geopolitical conflicts are particularly important and prevalent. And when I'm usually, I, I do a lot of work in, in Congo, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and most people tell me we are the country in the world where geopolitical conflicts are the most, most prevalent. When I travel research. We are the, I mean, you know, I could go on and on. I've heard the same thing in Afghanistan. I've heard the same thing in Timor-Leste, in Israel, and the Palestinian territories. So you, there is really an implication of all of the levels of conflicts, and that leads to uh, questions by the ambassador. Yeah, question by the ambassador regarding how we can um, uh, merge bottom-up top-down peace building, and that's the million-dollar question. That's really, really the sticking point, the thing that we don't know how, how to do well. And uh, the first thing I want to say about that is that grassroots bottom-up doesn't mean small. And uh, the example I like best to talk about that is the example of Somaliland. So I don't know if many of you are familiar with Somaliland. 
It's okay, autonomous region, northeast of Somalia. And you can see the difference, the fascinating difference between, on the one hand, Somalia, that is extremely violent, has some of the highest ranking in the world's least desirable category, like most corrupt country, second most failed state, etc. Lots of terrorism, lots of violence. And then you have Somaliland that has experienced very little violence for the past 25 years, very little terrorism, has a well-functioning state, a functioning democracy. And the main difference is that the usual peace ink, top-down, outsiders-led approach has prevailed in Somalia, while Somaliland benefited from sustained grassroots initiatives that were led by insiders, by Somalilanders themselves. And this example is really important because you know the scale of Somaliland. The territory is larger than, um, I think it's larger than Syria and North Korea. And in terms of population, it has 4 million people, larger population than Bosnia. So grassroots doesn't mean small. And so now when we're talking about how we can link top down to bottom up, that's where there is no template goes back to what we were saying, we cannot take something that worked in Congo, in Somaliland, in, in South Sudan, in, in Israel and the Palestinian territories and just apply it somewhere else. We need to learn big lessons, but just broad principles, like the idea that we need interveners to come in support of, I mean, I know I, okay, uh, I have a book about that. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> and I'll, I'll talk more about that tomorrow at the workshop that Anna is organizing. Anyway, um, last thing, when we're talking about grassroots bottom-up, that's also a reason for inclusion. When you look at dumping peace processes, the percentage of Negotiators, as we heard, are extremely small. When we talk about grassroots processes and including ordinary citizens, by definition, women, women are a lot more included. Thank you. And gentlemen, we're running out of time, but I don't want to discriminate against the men. All. Um, Not bad. I think one of the roles of a chair is to, to finish on time. So we're not going to have time for another round, but if you can respond to the issues that were raised and maybe you want to say something thought-provoking that people would then come up to you in coffee time and continue but we'll go down the line this way Ahmed. okay uh, just uh, maybe comment on sudan uh, of course the situation is no good but not as i'm not as pessimistic as dr aranda i think there is hope for uh, sudan i wish the western partners you know they supported democracy right away after the toppling of Bashir. There was, a, there was an opportunity, but yes. they keep delaying the elections, you know, both Hamduk and other governments, so didn't ask people what the Sudanese think. Now it became like arms uh, twisting from different partners. And if we are sincere about democracy, we can solve many of the problems. And now I think there is, a, I mean, no international partner or regional uh, government taking obvious or open side with the conflicting parties. So the Saudi role with the US, the ceasefire and stuff can, can develop also. Uh, and Sudan has enough resources to, to maintain itself if, if, if it is stable. So uh, we, we should, uh, we can, you know, encourage them to come to terms. You know, it's not like uh, 
drought or they have water, the Nile, they have uh, gold and even oil. And the same for South Sudan also, you know, Western uh, partners, they were good to support the independence, but after the independence, they kind of forget about South Sudan. So this, this is a global world. We, we can all contribute to the well-being, sometimes with money, sometimes with know-how, and maybe with these kind of discussions. I think there is hope, but you know, we have to work for it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. For the JCPOA issues, my, yes, I, I think so far the China is certainly the policy toward the JCPOA is very consistent, consistent which has restored the JCPOA. And uh, I think in the JCPOA and the Iranian nuclear deal, I think so far I think it has been seemingly clear like the most uh, obstacle toward this deal is not EU or even not China. It's like the US and the Iran, they lacked, we say, uh, they are in a kind of a very serious with a trust deficit. Or even what we say, sometimes the US policy toward Iran are highly influenced by its domestic partisan politics. When there is a like, Democratic Party and the Republican Party will have a very different idea toward this type of EU. And in this type of issue, I would say even, I don't know, but probably even EU, like even despite the transatlantic trans relationship, it will be still very hard to sometimes to persuade the U.S. To, to, to go back to this deal. But I think in this regard, China also may feel that it may do not have that kind of leverage in joining this one. But I would say in the JCPOA so far, in this type of issue, because if you say China's policy toward all the principles toward all this type of deal, because China supports the multilateralism, and China has always think that the JCPOA is a, will be a pretty good example for a multilateral effort to address a kind of a, kind of a potential, we say, a nuclear crisis. I think China certainly. I think China and the EU will have like a lot of common thing, interest to work on this issue. <coughs> That's right. Quickly, Russia and uh, Palestinians were mentioned. Um, maybe the other way around. I once spoke in Ramallah with a representative of the Palestinian Authority. Even there are no democratically legitimized representatives. But anyway, uh, and uh, what I heard there was nothing but cynical because I was advocating for a two-state solution and they said, can you provide Israel with a security guarantee in order to make a two-state solution more probable or even happen? And he said, why would the country with the strongest military on earth be afraid of us? So this is nothing but cynical because we all know how terrorism works and targeting civilians women, children, men every day in Israel is something that can't be um, uh, avoided by even if he calls it the strongest military on earth. So it's a far way to go and uh, I, I've taken a lot of notes and listened carefully on a lot of things and of course Abraham Eckert's are good but maybe not everything but it's a very good step forward and I, I remain with my understanding that's the best geopolitical development. Um, there is nobody in Russia to talk to. This is also something I want to be frank about. I was in contact with colleagues from the Duma before the fully-fledged war. I even had a lot of days and nights in the summer before the war with some of them in Greece. Uh, I sent them letters during February before the fully-fledged war began, asking for peace, advocating for peace. I didn't receive an answer and haven't received an answer yet 
from them. I'm only a small parliamentarian, but uh, on this level, uh, there is absolutely no opportunity to talk and uh, let's say to, to treat hate and ideology of hate and ideology of aggression like as if it would be an argument, uh, obviously is proved wrong. Because this was more or less how Putin Russia was treated in the past and it led to even worse, from bad to worse. And that's, that's the result what we can see today. Uh, of course, I, I will be the happiest man when this, when this mess is over and we will have somebody to speak to in order for the reasons uh, I have talked about. Um, especially for the next generation, for the sake of a future without this kind of aggression and conflict and, and tensions uh, all the time from, from this part. There would be a lot more to say. I'm extremely grateful for a lot of food for thought and a lot of deep insights uh, from this panel and from this whole audience. Thank you again. Thank, thank you, and also thank you again for your opening remarks, and uh, to all the panelists for their interventions. Uh, I'm glad that we focused more on peace than the fragmented world. You can go to so many conferences where you can talk about the world in a mess today, but our challenge is to say, right, let's do something about it. And I heard a lot from you about uh, inclusion, about reciprocity, about dignity, about agency. And I didn't give much guidance to the panel beforehand in an email, but I said, please speak for about five minutes and don't leave the audience depressed at the end. And I think <laughs> we more or less achieved that. So please join me in giving the panel a big round of applause. And if, I can, if I can say something, please join. Thank you for the moderator. Excellent moderator. <laughs> I understand there's a coffee break now. Moritz, is there any... Uh, oh, the moderator, sorry. <laughs> there's a few more announcements, but please feel free to uh, take your seats and, and uh, we have a moment. Or, or, you, can, or you can stay. Um, I, just, I really just have a couple of announcements. Um, also from my side, thank you so much for the, for the panel and for, the, for sharing these insights about your work. Quick announcement related to the final session of this conference on Thursday at 1.30 p.m. You may or may not have seen in the program that we've prepared a little something special for the final session. We'll be sharing the takeaways from the Forum for Peace in a special format. AI will visualize our week's worth of work and our ideas. I don't want to say too much because we want to keep it a surprise, but I will say this. Just know that we've co-created a very special piece of art. Staff at the Austrian Center for Peace have worked together with an AI and three lucky people in this room will get to take home a framed poster of that work of art in a size A3. If you take a look at your name tags and name badges, you'll find they have a number at the back. And these numbers will be used in a raffle. All you need to do is be right back here. I think you might need to. No number. No number. You, might need to uh, you might need to open the name tag and check ah, inside. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry for confusing you. Um, <laughs> the number's inside. It will be used for raffle. All you need to do is be right back here on Thursday at 1.30 p.m. at our final session entitled Visualizing a Future for Peace, Tentative Answers Illustrated by AI Art. I trust everyone has found their numbers. That being said, let me give you a brief overview of the rest of this day. 
So after a short break, your expert workshops and, your, and the summer school will begin at 11.45 a.m. Coffee is being served inside the workshop room, so please, as soon as I finish um, with the announcements, those of you who registered, make your way immediately to your workshop rooms, um, and you'll uh, find coffee and uh, refreshments there. The workshop on peace education, led by Ursula Gamauf, is happening in a different building. So those of you registered for that workshop on peace education, please make your way to the registration office and from there you will meet your workshop uh, moderator and you will make your way to the workshop as a group. Those of you who are not participating in the workshops, we've prepared a tourist program, especially for our conference participants, so please also make your way to the registration office where you can find all the information on the tourist program if you would like to join. After the morning workshop at 1.15 p.m., you have exactly one hour for lunch. Therefore, it is very important that you finish your morning workshop on time if you don't want to be rushed at lunch, which I trust none of you want to be. Um, lunch will be served in the courtyard, just like yesterday um, for dinner. And um, the afternoon is a little bit more flexible. So the afternoon workshops start at 2.15 uh, p.m. They're supposed to end at 5.30, but the evening reception only begins at 6.30, so it's up to you how much leeway you want to leave yourselves. In the evening, we've planned a regional theme for you. We're delighted to invite you to our Haydn and Wine Burgenland evening, starting, as I said, from 6.30 p.m., depending on the weather, we'll announce the location later, um, but definitely you will enjoy a classical concert there, followed by wine from local winemakers and regional delicacies. That was it for the announcements. Thank you so much for being with us this morning, and we hope you enjoy your workshop sessions.